Hello everyone and welcome to the Mimetic Exegete Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. For those who are just tuning in, we have recently completed our study on the Book of Romans. In the Mimetic Exegete Podcast, we have also considered books such as Ecclesiastes, the Gospel of John, Revelation, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Philippians. While I would like to continue our study in the Pentateuch to consider the book of Deuteronomy, I think we'll leave that one until next season. To conclude this season, season four, let us turn our attention to a book that at first glance seems less mimetic than any other, a poem that describes the intricate dance of love shared between a king and a pauper the closest we will ever get to a characteristic Disney retelling of a classic fairy tale in the Holy Bible, the Song of Songs. This title means the greatest of all songs. Although the first line of this book attributes it to King Solomon, son of David, most scholars regard this line as a later addition to an otherwise anonymous book. In a text that seems kind of out of place in the biblical canon, we explore the delicate negotiations of love as a relationship between a king and his beloved blossoms. Historically, many have interpreted this poem as an allegorical retelling of God's interaction with his people, which is certainly a legitimate reading of the text. For example, ancient Jewish writers interpreted the Song of Songs as a parable of Israel's deliverance from slavery into Egypt and then their journeys with the Lord. Christian writers such as Oregon interpreted the Song of Songs as a love story which really referred to Christ and the church in its spiritual meaning. For writers such as Oregon, this true spiritual meaning underlying the text is what's really important. Oregon describes his disdain for a more literal reading of the text as he claims that carnal men have perverted these arts to foster vicious longings and the secrets of sinful love. They took occasion from it to rush into carnal sins and down the steep places of immodesty, either by taking some suggestions and recommendations out of what had been written by using what the ancients wrote as a cloak for their own lack of self-control. We could imagine Origen's critique fitting Mark Driscoll's reading of this passage in our own day. In a series of sermons preached on this book in Mars Hill, Driscoll attempted to sexualize the text as much as he could. He interpreted the beloved statement that her king's fruit was sweet to her taste as a reference to fellatio, and later on in the book, when the king visits the beloved's garden and blows on it and spices flow out as a reference to cunnilingus. While Driscoll's approach may seem vulgar and crude, there may be some merit to it. As scholars have noted, the Hebrew scriptures are an abundant source of euphemisms and cloaked descriptions of sex acts. The image of fruit is commonly employed and associated with such practices. Another example is the use of the term feet to describe genitals in the Hebrew Bible. With this in mind, chapter 7 verse 1, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a mastered hand. 
takes on a whole new meaning. Also in chapter 5 verse 3, the beloved is visited by her king and she refuses to open the door to him. She says, I have put off my garment. How can I put it on? I have bathed my feet. How could I soil them? Again, takes on a whole new meaning if this term feet is a euphemism for sex organs. So there are a whole spectrum of approaches which one could take when they read the Song of Songs. While acknowledging the allegorical approach and at the other end of the spectrum, this hypersexualized approach to the Song of Songs, I want to take more of a middle road in this study. We shall interpret statements such as the beloved's claim that her king's fruit is sweet to her taste as a declaration of his pleasantness in her sight. After all, fruit does not always take on a sexual connotation in scripture, but it is also a way of describing someone's deeds and actions. When combined with other statements about his aroma as a pleasing perfume, and the sight of him bounding over the mountains as a glorious picture. We soon realize that all these descriptions combined together give us the impression that she is totally infatuated with this man. She loves the way he looks, she loves the way he smells, she loves the way he tastes. Everything about her and her senses just yearn for this person. When we compile all this sensory data, the gestalt, the summary of everything, is that the beloved finds her king pleasurable and desirable in every single way. No doubt sexuality is intricately linked to all of these sensory experiences, but if we just focus monoptically on sex, we miss everything else that's going on in this story. As we apply the lens of mimetic theory to the Song of Songs, we will read this text as a love story, not between God and his people or Christ and the church, but between two people. We shall set our focus upon the role of mimetic desire in this relationship and how it causes it to blossom. So without further ado, let's begin reading from chapter 1, verse 1. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, the young women love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am very dark but lovely. O oh, daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of their vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you will make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flock, and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. 
we will make ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of En Gedi. Behold, you are more beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our raft is a pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This phrase, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases, recurs throughout the book and divides the book into various sections. Commonly, this phrase is interpreted as an exhortation to purity. But this interpretation seems quite improbable, given the vast amount of overt sexual imagery employed throughout the book. If anything, the book seems to celebrate sexuality rather than encouraging celibacy. When viewed through the lens of mimetic theory, it takes on a new significance. Those who have been listening to this podcast for any length of time would be familiar with my mantra. We always want what we can't have. Obstacles to our desire only strengthen our resolve and determination. As we shall see throughout our study, love and romance are also susceptible to this same law of mimetic desire. Now, I'm not attempting to explain love solely through mimetic theory. I'm sure there are many other factors and variables in play, certain appetites, likes, dislikes, which draw or repel people. There's this biological phenomenon of pheromones which people can smell and pick up on and it breeds attraction. That said, I believe mimetic desire at least plays a role in the blossoming or failing of romance. For example, have you ever noticed how desperation can be a real turnoff? When someone throws themselves at us, It's not endearing. It doesn't kindle affection or desire within us. In fact, we find ourselves repulsed and repelled. Why? Because we always want what we can't have. If someone is desperate, they are willing to give us whatever part of them we desire. It's ours for the taking. Someone who is desperate will commonly attempt to awaken love before it pleases by throwing themselves at someone and hoping to get a positive response. But far from achieving love, this approach will repel people and quenches any desire they might have otherwise harbored for that person. Rather than awakening love before it pleases, the Song of Songs recommends a more patient and measured approach in which challenges and advances are shrewdly employed to kindle love and desire. 
we'll see this approach play out as we continue our study. If we read the text carefully, we soon observe some suggestions that the king may not actually be a king at all, but a lowly shepherd. In verses 7 and 8, the beloved asks where this person pastures his flocks, and the king instructs her to follow the flocks to the shepherd's tent. In the ancient world, kings did not associate with shepherds who look after their livestock. Is this king unusually hands-on? Probably not. Also, the beloved tells us that their couch is green, the beams of their house are cedar, and their rafters are pine. Why would their couch be green? Because their couch is actually the grass on which they sit to have a break at break time. And they sit under the shade of this tree, which is made of cedar or pine. In fact, when we look at the text, there's a lot of outdoor imagery here. The beloved calls herself a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. She calls her beloved an apple tree of the forest. She swears by the gazelles or does of the field. These people are outdoor workers and that's their domain. And so the descriptions they use to describe their love and their surroundings reflect that. I think the king in our poem is actually a lowly shepherd. But when viewed through the eyes of his beloved, this lowly shepherd becomes a glamorous, powerful, honorable king. In fact, in Egyptian poetry, the term king or prince is commonly used as an endearment for lover. So perhaps the Song of Songs follows a similar convention. As these two lovers exchange compliments, a cycle of mimesis begins. Notice that in verse 16, the beloved imitates her king's words, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. From a mimetic perspective, these two lovers are imitating one another's compliments back and forward. As the cycle continues, these compliments become more lavish. While the beloved begins to view her shepherd lover as a king, this shepherd lover sees the beloved as a symbol of strength and power, describing her as one of Pharaoh's prized mares. Of course, this portrait strongly contrasts the beloved's self-portrait of herself. The beloved claims that she is a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys, which has become somewhat romanticized. The term translated as rose in this verse most likely refers to a daffodil or a narcissus, while the identity of the flower translated as lily remains a mystery. In any case, scholars note that the beloved's words actually represent a humble claim that she is merely one of many flowers in the valley. In other words, there is nothing particularly special about her that anyone should desire her. Yet the king responds to these words, praising his beloved's unique beauty and worth. To him, she is not just a flower among many others, but a lone flower among many weeds. To her king, the beloved certainly stands out from the crowd. The beloved then imitates her king's sentiment, claiming that he stands out from the crowd like an apple tree in the midst of a forest. There is something beautiful about the way these two lovers look at each other with rose-colored glasses, even though we are led to believe that neither of them are particularly special. 
we have a saying in our own culture, love is blind. And these two seem to be blind to one another's flaws and failings. Perhaps this sort of love blindness is generated in a similar means to the sort of blindness that comes about in intense situations of mimetic rivalry. In earlier seasons, we have discussed the imagery of blindness and darkness in the Bible and how these pictures are used to depict the blindness of mimetic rivalry. In these situations, the crowd becomes blind to the differences that exist in their community, to the innocence of their victims, and ultimately to their own violence. The blindness of love functions as a negative image of the blindness generated through excessive mimetic violence. While these two forms of blindness may look very different in practice, they are ultimately generated through the same mechanism. The cycle of love also has a physical and emotional effect on the beloved. The flurry of reciprocated compliments and kindness leaves a beloved weakened with love. In our modern parlance, we might say she has gone weak at the knees. As the cycle continues, the beloved's sickness only deepens as she melts into her king's arms and oxytocin floods her brain. In her euphoria, the beloved urges the daughters of Jerusalem to resist awakening love before its time. Who are these daughters of Jerusalem? I think these women are the beloved's co-workers who work with her in the vineyard. When the beloved describes herself as just another flower in the field among many, these are the flowers among which she dwells. When a romance blossoms between the beloved and her king, her peers, the daughters of Jerusalem who work with her, desperately want the same thing for themselves. The daughters of Jerusalem adopt the beloved as a model whom they imitate in the hope of becoming like her. They express their admiration for her as they declare, We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Having observed the beloved's beautiful cheeks decorated with ornaments, the daughters of Jerusalem decide to imitate her by making ornaments of gold studded with silver for themselves. She sees that the daughters of Jerusalem have observed the beloved's love affair with her king and now desire a similar relationship for themselves. This desire will drive them to imitate the beloved's actions in the hope of becoming like her and experiencing true love. But the beloved warns the daughters of Jerusalem not to imitate her, lest in their desperation they drive off potential suitors. The daughters of Jerusalem must begin by exchanging sly glances and polite smiles with their suitors. If these subtle advances are imitated, then both parties may pluck up the courage to speak to one another. In time, this cycle may escalate into the type of love and mutual admiration expressed by the beloved and her king. The daughters of Jerusalem must patiently play this measured game and allow mimetic desire to kindle a relationship between themselves and their lovers. The love between the beloved and her king may be further fueled by the obstacle to their union. 
the beloved tells us that her mother's sons were angry with her and made her the keeper of their vineyards, but her own vineyard she has not kept. Notice she does not say her brothers, but her mother's sons, suggesting that they share the same mother, but perhaps a different father. These men force their half-sister into hard labor in their own vineyards, and she has no time to tend to her own vineyard. In other words, the beloved's brothers extort her time and effort to make themselves rich, which means she cannot pursue her own dreams. This obstacle only strengthens her desire for her shepherd king, whose love she describes as sweeter than wine. She calls her shepherd king to draw her out of her misery and deliver her into a new life of pleasure and luxury. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.